Christmas bells are ringing. Christmas bells are ringing. Christmas bells are singing on TV at Saks. Honest living, honest living, honest living, honest living. Can't you spare a dime or two? Honest living, you'll be merry, I'll be merry. The merry ain't in my vocabulary. No sleigh bells, no Santa Claus, no Yule Log, no tinsel, no holly, no hearth, no Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, December 24th, 2017. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Welcome back. Thanks. Where were you last week? I forget. Sacramento. Sacramento. Oh. And flying through and flying through Atlanta on last Sunday. Think oh, about it. <laughs> no. Yes, that... off to Minneapolis instead. <laughs> the plane del- and the plane delayed by two and a half hours because there was a leak of gas. So I had to stay in Minneapolis tonight. And too late to see a show I got there. That's the real tragedy. Oh. <laughs> I wouldn't have minded if I could have been there at eight o'clock at some theater, but no, it was not to be. Anyway, here I am. Also, <laughs> while in Sacramento, were you affected by the fires at all? No, no. Um, okay. I, I, I think that was um, a bit away. Um, but um, no. Um, but I did go to the B Street Theater and see their show, A Moving Day, which um, pleased its audience immeasurably. So uh, Minneapolis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Minneapolis. It, I, I can't remember. I think in Minneapolis there is a – Bowling alley slash cabaret. Is that right? Never uh, heard that. Oh, I have wow. to dig that up. And if any of our listeners know about this, uh, please email us and let us know. I, I'm pretty sure there was a bowling alley cabaret in Minneapolis. So uh, that's has, there ever, has there ever been an, an, uh, um, a musical that deals with bowling? Um, somehow I think that huh. – I, I have an image of uh, somebody throwing mm. a bowling ball and being attached to it and going across the stage. I, maybe that was in Sherry way back when. But anyway, <laughs> enough said. I think so. I think so. Anyway. 300, the musical. Right. No. <laughs> one called golf. There's been one called golf. So yes, I thought there there'd be one called bowling. Okay. <laughs> Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So we are here on uh, Christmas Eve for those who celebrate Christmas. (laughs) And um, we're going to talk some theater and get caught up on a few shows here. Peter, you got down to New York Theater Workshop to see the much-buzzed-about 100 Days. So tell us, what is your buzz on this? Uh, I didn't like it at all. Um, But it has nothing to do uh, with me in the sense that... um, It's just it, I, I don't think it's uh, a musical. Um, uh, here's, here are my criteria. So 
after a number, when people are standing in a microphone and the audience applauds and the people on stage say thank you, to me, we're not in a musical, we're in a concert. When they introduce the members of the band, which they do here, this is not a musical, this is a concert. And it has all the uh, trappings of a rock concert um, where the guy uh, sort of skips across the stage and looks at another musician and they relate to each other as musicians, not as characters. So it's, uh, it's not a musical to me. All right, even that aside, I mean, I didn't find the story very interesting about this couple that met and uh, got married after three weeks. And uh, the only thing that conceivably makes it a musical is towards the end of the show, they have a long, long, long scene together. And and uh, we really see what uh, went on and all that. But I'm just not interested. And I'll tell you, I really, truly believe that um, of all the shows I've seen, the, the leading man in this one may be the most charisma-free um, performer I've ever seen in my life. So wasn't for me. I know a lot of people like it. Good luck to them. Uh, may they live and prosper and uh, all that goes with that. But, um, you know, I, I really do feel if indeed this is a musical then um, we should cons uh, consider all those shows at the old Mark Hellinger Theater that does where they simply sing one song after another um, on Sundays as services should be eligible for awards, too. So, um, so no, um, 100 days. It seemed like 100 days to me while I was sitting there. Wow. I've not heard a bad report about this, and that's oh, I so know. interesting. I know. I know. I know. Minority Report. Absolutely. So, so you're giving us a justification to uh, make the Times Square Church a Tony eligible house. Absolutely. Under I these think... circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm Michael. I interrupted. No, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> I'm sure other people won't agree, but anyway. Uh, yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, uh, so. There, it's, it, this was a concert. There's, there's really no book to it, no characters. Well, or... they, they narrate every now and then saying uh, what happened. And, but the, the, really, there is a substantial scene at the end. I have to admit that. And it's, it's not badly written. But good Lord. I mean, I still say, if indeed you're introducing the band, if you're saying thank you after a song, it's not a musical. It's a concert. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying there. Huh. So, uh, 100 Days is running yep. down at New York Theatre Workshop through the end of uh, December. And uh, this much-buzzed-about production, yes. maybe it won't transfer. You know? oh, 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 please. I mean, please. <laughs> uh, good, good luck to it. And the, the music's nice. music's nice. Um, uh, I'll tell you, though, um, I saw Cruel Intentions, which is uh, at La Poisson Rouge, uh, essentially the old village gate on Bleecker Street. And... Um, this was a real musical, and uh, while I did think there were mistakes made in terms of the the quality of the songs, well, I guess what I mean is that um, there's an older character in Cruel Intentions, and she has music that sounds like everybody else's, and I think she shouldn't. Mm. Um, I, I, there should be an adjustment there. There's a very timid girl uh, in uh, Cruel Intentions, and I think her music should be different, but everybody, all the music essentially uh, is in the same style, so I think that's a problem, but the good thing about Cruel Intentions is that it really follows um, a musical template. Now, a lot of people might say to me, you're just so mired in conventionality that you really just see musicals as one form and nothing else. Um, that could very well be, I'll grant you. But uh, still, it was um, certainly fine to see a musical based on a, a famous property, in this case, Les Liaison Dangereux, but actually based on the movie Cruel Intentions that was made later that contemporized the story. <coughs> And 
you know, here it was, you know, people had motivation for why they were singing. And I like that a lot as opposed to just singing a song. So um, I, I really thought it was uh, very well done for what it was. Will it be my favorite musical of the year? Hardly, hardly. Um, but still, it made sense. It worked on its own level. It succeeded where it wanted to succeed. And uh, the two leading people in it, I think, are very, very good. Um, it's it's not a pleasant story. It never has been uh, ever since day one when uh, it was written way back when. But um, in case you don't know, it, it really is about um, two people, a man and a woman, who are have become um, united because their parents got married uh, for the second time, and the, so they're uh, step siblings. And um, well, uh, they're, they're not nice people, and uh, they make a bet that uh, one of them can seduce somebody who seems unseducible. And um, frankly, I have seen the original movie, Cruel Intentions, and uh, <laughs> the way it's put in the movie is uh, far less elegant the way it's put in the uh, musical as to what hmm. the reward will be if indeed um, the man succeeds. Um, I can't imagine that um, any guy would take the bet that um, is offered because he is offering um, the, the bet that is if she if he can't do it she wins his jaguar uh, which tells you something about their um, economic uh, situation but uh, if he wins he gets to sleep with her and do uh, whatever he wants whatever he wants whatever he wants and that's much more clear in the movie what she's really offering than it is in the musical so the musical has a tiny bit more um, good taste um, than um, the movie does but anyway um, I think it's a very very watchable show and um, so uh, it's not you know that I'm really against rock musicals I just really want them to make sense um and um it would be better if indeed there were a very different song um for the for the older woman the mother of one of the girls and the girls who's naive um so um so i think mistakes are made there but still it played as a real musical and that's what i liked so this uh cruel intentions uh they feature lots of 80s uh or 90s music actually uh Boys to Men, Christina Aguilera, REM, in sync, uh, Britney Spears. So, uh, they uh, it, do they have other original music in it? I think so. I'm not. I'm certainly not up in pop music of that era. But I will yeah. say this: there were times when the audience responded right away. Um, mm-hmm. when they heard the first bars of a song. Oh, so, those, so they and then it. with times when they didn't. So I assume that there are songs that are, are written specifically for this piece. So I don't think it's simply a jukebox, unless they don't have any affection for the songs they chose that um, that didn't get applause. That could very well be too. I don't know. But um, yeah, there, there were no programs. Um, at least I didn't get one. Huh? And I thought I'd get one on the way out. And that wasn't offered to me either. So, um, so I'm really um, at sea where it comes to what's going on here. Um, it's why I'm not mentioning the names of the two leads because I don't know who they are but they were very good um, and and very very right for the show very right indeed very well cast you know it was a very well cast show very well directed uh, slick all that kind of business you know so um, so really um, I, I I have nothing um, against it and and even wish it well but um, I think it really could be a hit the audience had a hell of a time though I will admit that um, I did overhear people saying uh, yeah they uh, somebody offered me tickets and so I said okay I'll go you know so there was, <laughs> 
So I'm not sure how many people in that sold-out house, so to speak, or at least papered-out house, or at least capacity-filled house, um, actually um, paid a nickel to get in. I have no idea. But really, um, very, very um, enthusiastic audience. Uh, and of course, that's they, they tend to be enthusiastic when they get in free, I will admit. But um, but anyway, you know, who knows? Maybe that was just a couple of things. Uh, people at my table uh, and the one next to me, that's where I overheard that. Um, before the show and uh there is an intermission too so um i heard something like that too while i was on my way to the restroom so anyway um good, good luck to cruel intentions uh all right so that is cruel intentions i pulled up their website uh cast alex boniello matthew griffin brian muller patricia richardson that we know constantine Rizzuli, who's uh pretty uh well known to broadway audiences um, Jesse Shelton, Carrie St. Louis, Lauren Zachrin, Zachrin, Stephanie Brown, and Tristan Schuler. So, um, and the playing schedule is Saturday, Sunday, Mondays. No, nothing, nothing Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So that's really. I, I went uh, uh, ten o'clock on Thursday night. Um, I don't know if that was just uh, something they. Uh, yeah, it did. looks like in January they convert to uh, this weekend schedule. I see. Okay. Uh, I mean, it was great to be able to go um, on Thursday at 10 because um, I had gone to see the 20th anniversary concert of After the Fair, uh, Stephen Cole and Matthew uh, Ward's musical. Very, very good show. Uh, tremendously effective. And uh, that was at 7. And I was able to get to a show at 10. I love when that happens, that I can uh, uh, get two in in one night. And uh, <laughs> two shows couldn't be more different because um, After the Fair is a very elegant show, um, dealing with uh, a, a woman who's living vicariously through her maid who has fallen in love and um and she's writing the letters for her because the the girl is virtually uh, illiterate so um a very effective piece and i I really wish somebody would pick it up it's a four-character musical a real chamber music uh, musical with very 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 lovely lovely appropriate music to the characters and specifically wonderful lyrics by stephen cole who really is a major major talent and and really should have like seven shows on broadway if there were any justice in this world so um anyway it was great to be able to see two shows in one night and two very different shows in one night too so make that a one night only type of thing after the fair at urban stages um all right so michael you got to another one night only event uh this one was barbara cook's memorial so why don't you tell us about that Yes, uh, gladly. A tribute to Barbara Cook, December 18th, 2017, at the Vivian Beaumont Theater, where she had worked. Um, we lost uh, one of the leading lights of musical theater and cabaret in the concert world when Barbara died on August 8th. I'm sure she needs no introduction to 99% of our listeners. She first uh, made her mark as the leading lady of such Broadway musicals as Flahooly, Plain and Fancy, and then uh, a monster hit, The Music Man. Also, She Loves Me, one of the most beloved shows of, of many, many musical theater enthusiasts. Uh, she's also in The Grass Harp. And then she had a period of um, struggle and reemerged as one of the most popular uh, cabaret and concert artists of our time. She had an extraordinary voice, just really unique uh, to hear her, her talk about her her own voice and her own 
training uh, to me was always a fascinating experience. If you look up interviews that where she talks about that and her her voice teacher and uh, her theories uh, about singing. I know that uh, one thing that Barbara said that always stuck out in, in my mind was that uh, I asked her once, well, if Candide hadn't closed, uh, and I didn't mention Candide, did I, <laughs> in my first list? Uh, uh. Yes, Candide. Uh, if uh, Candide had not closed, would she have had a problem singing that extremely difficult music eight times a week? And she said that basically um, – her voice teacher taught her that if you are singing correctly, that shouldn't be a problem, the the amount that you're singing. Now, I think there's a limit to that. But anyway, she was very firm in that belief. And since Candy did not last long at all, um, I guess we'll never know. But I'll tell you, one of the highlights of this tribute at the Beaumont was uh, it opened with a section of film clips of old uh, old film uh, and tape of Barbara in a live performance, also some of her TV work. She did some TV work. And um, when it got to Glitter and Be Gay, whoever put the, uh, the tribute together, uh, of course, wisely picked the section – uh, the most difficult section towards the end that includes the high E flat. And when Barbara sang it, the audience applauded. <laughs> and I thought that was just so moving and touching that I really got a tear in my eye at that point because she wasn't there uh, to hear it. But just uh, pointing out how this is just a recorded performance, but thank God we have it. Thank God we have the technology to have preserved that incredible singing of that very, very difficult piece of music by Leonard Bernstein. Uh, so that s started the uh, the tribute off on a wonderful note, and, and then it just went from one high point to another. The performers, uh, not necessarily in order, Renee Fleming, the opera star, sang Hello, Young Lovers from The King and I. Audra MacDonald sang a song which she said was specifically requested by James Lapine, who directed this tribute. And that song, I'm not sure if it has any specific connection to Barbara. Maybe you guys can help me. But it was Go Back Home from the Scottsboro Boys, which if you think about the lyric um, and the beautiful mu music, it really fits in wonderfully with this kind of tribute. Uh, Kelly O'Hara, who adored Barbara Cook, sang Make Someone Happy from Do Re Mi. Jessica Malaski and John Pizzarelli did I Got Rhythm, and Vanessa Williams and Norm Lewis did so many people from Sondheim Saturday Night. Uh, then there were other people who spoke but did not sing. Sheldon Harnick, uh, actually, he was the first speaker, and he told a story, which Peter may know, that the song ice cream was written while the show was out of town pre-Broadway and they brought the song uh, he and um, Jerry Bach brought the song to Barbara one day I think they maybe they said he said Philly I'm not sure uh, and and she and they played it for her and she loved it and she said let's do it tonight and they were just flabbergasted that she was willing to put it in that quickly um and but she said yes, and they 
uh, said, well, aside from everything else, you know, it's not orchestrated. So they brought it to Don Walker and he said he could orchestrate it for that night. And so that's what happened. That show went in to to that song went into the show on the same day that it was first presented to Barbara Cook by Bach and Harnick. Um, I don't think I'd ever heard that before. And that's amazing. Um, let's see who else spoke. Uh, Michael Kaiser, Jane Summerhays had some very wonderful stories. Roy Furman, Frank Langella, who it turns out was a very close friend of Barbara Cook. They apparently have a great many late-night conversations and email exchanges. They both uh, were uh, people who would, would be up until the wee hours of the morning. That's, and I guess their sleep schedule was more oriented towards the day. Uh, so they bonded, and they just were very, very close. Um, it was mentioned during the show that Barbara was a tremendous, huge fan of Hugh Jackman to the point where she saw the boy from Oz 15 times. Uh, she absolutely loved him and he could not be at this tribute, but he sent a video tribute as did Stephen Sondheim himself. And it was just really a wonderful afternoon. And, and also it was the first such um, tribute or memorial service that I had ever attended in the Beaumont. And I have to say it seemed, um, almost a perfect place for that because it, it does accommodate a fairly large number of people who, so uh, people don't have to be turned away, but because of the setup of the seating, it, it seemed so much more intimate than uh, the normal Broadway theater. And the sight lines weren't an issue at all. In this case, uh, the screen for the projections was far back enough on the stage that I think even people on the extreme sides would have had no problem in seeing the images. Um, so really, um, congratulations and thank you so much to James Lapine, who directed, Natalie Gerstein, who produced, uh, musical director Andy Einhorn, Video video editor Mikey or Mickey Wolf, lighting designer Ken Elliott, uh, stage manager Sarah Cox Bradley, and to the people at Lincoln Center for giving up that beautiful theater for this tribute to an unforgettable, unforgettable performer. That's a that's a beautiful roundup of of that. It sure is, Michael. It sure is. Oh well, it, yeah. There, thank you. There's um. I, I I didn't read it yet, but someone told me there's a New York Times article. New York on Times it. article uh, bidding adieu to that wondrous songbird, Barbara Cook. Uh, Stuart Emrich. I don't know Stuart's work, but uh, quite an article in the Times. Um, you. Oh, also... and. One more thing. Uh, Sondheim, in his video clip, mentions, I couldn't believe this because I have been talking about this with friends for decades, and I never thought that anyone else, that Sondheim would ever mention it in any context. But he was talking about how um, for the Follies in Concert, uh, the famous Follies in Concert at Avery Fisher Hall in 1985, there was a documentary about it, and there was uh, clips of a rehearsal, and Barbara Cook gets up to sing in Buddy's Eyes, and everyone in the room, including Mandy Patinkin, Lee Remick, Sondheim himself, they're just wrapped listening to this beautiful, beautiful 
rendition. Everyone except Elaine Stritch, <laughs> who was going through her bag, going through her bag, pulling out her shoes and and uh, trying to get someone to give her a cigarette. So Sondheim alludes alludes to this, and then we saw the clip, which again I I have analyzed that clip at many a party with with many a friend, and and people just can't it's believe your, how hilarious it is. It's, it's your so Zapruder funny. film. <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's so funny you say that because I almost watched that last night, that Follies in Concert. Yeah. <laughs> and ironically, I heard a story that when uh, Bernadette Peters and Elaine Stritch went into the revival of A Little Night Music at the first read-through, as the, the gentleman said to me, I'm not going to give his name, um, we were all so looking forward to hearing Bernadette Peters um, do Send in the Clowns. And we finally got to that point, and while she was doing it, Elaine Stritch pulled out all her diabetes stuff and started giving herself uh, insulin and what have you. I mean, so this is this is very interesting that um, she wants to pull focus uh, when she's not the main event. But anyway, uh, de mortuis nil nisi bonum. For those of you who didn't take Latin, that means of the dead, say nothing but good. So I'll stop right now. <laughs> so here we are in a Barbara Cook uh, discussion, and he, we're talking about Elaine Stritch. So she, um, she, she exactly. won again. She point won pro- again. Point proven. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! So, uh, Michael, you mentioned the uh, that the wonderful and talented Norm Lewis took pl- took part in the Barbara Cook tribute, and yes. we got uh, news this week that Norm Lewis is going to force us once again to go to the Circle in the Square Theater <laughs> as he goes into Once on This Island in a temporary replacement uh, as one of the gods. Uh, so that's tremendously exciting. I mean, uh, I, I mean, once in this island, we all three of us. I think all three of us agree that we really. <laughs> hmm? Not all three of us. Anyway, go on. <laughs> I think that all three of us agreed that we liked the show. Oh, fine. Okay, we liked we liked you... once in this island, yes. um, and uh, it's uh, yeah. And that um, Norm is going to uh, go into Once on this Island as a king, and uh, we had mentioned it on Today on Broadway, so I just wanted to throw it out there for folks who don't listen to Today on Broadway that uh, Norm's going to be in for a short period of time. The uh, uh, Peter and I got a chance to catch up with Farinelli and the King at the Belasco. Uh, Michael talked about it last week or the week before. I forget. I guess it was last week because it just uh, opened. Oh, and by the way, I have to apologize. I misspoke in my review. I, I just uh, said that it, the show was directed by John Doyle, uh, when which is not true. It's directed by John Dove. I was just glancing through my program uh, at the last moment, which I shouldn't have done. And it's in very small type, if that uh, is any kind of an well, excuse. Well, you should have known it wasn't John Doyle if it was in small type. <laughs> he he wouldn't allow that. <laughs> well, there were instruments on stage. So. <laughs> yes, this is true. <laughs> but anyway, uh, James was kind enough to cut it out uh, from of the podcast for me, but it was there for a while, so I just wanted to apologize for that. Michael, not only did that happen, but uh, while you had mentioned it, I looked it up, uh, and it was the power of suggestion because I looked up the London production and I said, yes, it was directed by John Doyle when it was John Dove <laughs> because I was looking at it myself and I got it wrong. So, Peter, what did you think about this non-John Doyle production of Farinelli and the King? 
Well, uh, seeing previews of shows means, of course, that you're seeing them before the reviews come out. And uh, I was very surprised that the reviews weren't substantially better than they were because I had a wonderful time at Farinelli and the King. But I have to admit that I'm very, very partial to shows that essentially say art can make you a better person. And that's what's going on here. Um, Farinelli is uh, is really kind of crazy. And uh, the first scene is just marvelous where he's dealing with his goldfish and um turns out that uh, he's so absent-minded that um that goldfish is going to have problems before that scene is over believe me so um you have this man who is really uh not fit to be king and believe me uh the prime minister or whatever he may be whatever the title may be certainly wants him out he <laughs> wants him out and that's and that's going to be part of the conflict of the play however uh, he is married um, to a, a Spanish uh, noble named Isabella, not the same Isabella who sent um, Columbus out in 1491 and uh, inspired a Meredith Wilson musical that never came to town. Anyway, <laughs> well, he did. So, so anyway, um, here we have uh, uh, his wife uh, thinking, you know, maybe um, if I bring this marvelous singer that I have heard in England to um, to Spain and have him hear it, um, it's very important. It's very possible that this will really help him um, to be to recover. And um, the real conceit of the show that's very strange and um, and works is the fact that the actor who is playing the singer does not do the singing. I guess you know that from having listened to the podcast um, when I wasn't here. But um, so um, Sam Crane is the actor playing um, the actor, <laughs> the actor Farinelli and um, um, a name that I don't know I'll be able to pronounce, but it's I can called- do it. Yeah, Good. Do it. Help me. I asked specifically. It's Yeston Davis. All right. So the I is pronounced as a Y, huh? Okay, fine. Yeston Davis, a, a countertenor who um, does a phenomenal job of the singing. It's really quite beautiful to hear him do it. So one can understand why Farinelli would improve um, as a result of this. So I was on this play side immediately. And of course, then you have Mark Rylance, who reminds me of a combination of Jim Dale and Buster Keaton, um, and maybe even a little Stan Laurel thrown in too. And uh, he's just marvelous at playing these characters who are... Um, offbeat, uh, a little off the beaten track, so on and so forth. So so I really enjoyed it. And I'm sorry to say that people um, have been saying they don't think it's much of a play. Uh, I thought it was quite a good one. And um, the metaphor is one that I uh, will certainly trumpet to the skies. So, so really, uh, if you've been discouraged by the other uh, people and um, your taste seems to be similar to mine, and um, if you're a regular listener, you know by now whether or not um, uh, <laughs> we are on the same artistic page – uh, do give Farinelli a chance. Uh, it's a limited run, and um, I'm sorry that it's a limited run. I, I, I hope it will be extended because enough people will go to it, but uh, we'll see what happens. But put me in the affirmative column. I'm definitely with you on the play. I, oh. I, I spoke about it before I read any – before the other reviews were out or before I read them, and I was – very surprised that several people said they didn't think the writing was yeah. quite up to snuff. I I never thought that for a moment. I was completely Either. involved. Yeah. I thought the character relationships were very interesting and very clear, and yep, the yep. narrative. And so, oh, good. So um, I'm uh, in the camp with both of you that I I I thought an extraordinary evening in the theater, uh, and I'm so. I, I was so lucky to be there 
while it was happening. Uh, yeah, um, I felt that way too. Lucky indeed. You know, it, it, for one thing, I mean, this is a Shakespeare Globe production, so the fact that we um, have it transferred is is just so wonderful to begin with. And of course, um, the fact that it looks so different. Um, now, you might say, wait a minute, it does not look different. Twelfth Night and Richard III uh, years ago. Yes, I understand that. But what I mean is that um, because it, it's essentially the same set as uh, when Mark Rylance brought those other two plays here uh, some years ago. But um, but the point is, you know, to see the, the stage basically lit by candlelight, right? I mean, that's is I, that. I it? was going to talk about the stage lit by candlelight, the no body microphones, uh, just the the pure sound that was there. Uh, it, uh, it was an extraordinary evening. Yeah, that's uh, that really registered with me too, and I really felt like we were being transported to uh, a different era, and um, and I went with it uh, very easily. Um. The uh, I have a question about the Yeston Davies uh, thing. Uh, why do, huh. why are we so um, able to embrace the splitting of this role between the singing and the acting so easily? Would we have done the same thing if a Maria Callas role in Masterclass were to be split? Well, of course, she doesn't sing in that. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, but <laughs> that's, that's a good point. That's, a, that's an excellent, excellent point. But I'm trying to think of other roles out there where this is supposed to be an extraordinary singer. Um, and could anybody else have done that? I don't know the answer to your question, but a friend of mine asked uh, a related question. Why didn't they have Yeston Davis just do the whole role? Just do the whole thing. Uh, yeah. He was um, good where the act, where he was required to act in those yes. small little bits. He was very yeah. good. So maybe it was uh, just a production concept. Hmm. I don't know. Michael, you know opera, of course, and I don't. Um, the only opera I know is Phantom of the Opera and Three Penny Opera. So, but you're an, <laughs> opera, you're an opera buff, and as a result, um, tell me about this singing. Um, uh, is uh, I'm told countertenor is the term used for this. Am I right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I kind of went through this last week on the podcast, you? so you can listen to that. But to to recap, uh, back in the old days, the not always good old days, sometimes boys, uh, pre-adolescent boys who had beautiful singing voices would be castrated right. so that uh, w- when they would get older, their voices would not change and they would retain that the higher sound, but be able to produce it with the physiognomy, the, the, the uh, lung capacity and the the increased musculature of an adult male and and the result was a, a very unique sound that's not quite the same as uh, as a as an actual uh, non-castrated male singing in falsetto which is the name that we give to uh, that that's what we would call uh, a countertenor nowadays. Um, I I said something like, we can never know what a castrato uh-huh. sounded like, uh-huh. but one of our readers reminded me, and uh, one of our listeners reminded me, and, and I do remember now that um, there is a, a recording of the last castrato 
that does exist, and it's actually in much better sound than I would have thought it it would uh-huh. be. I remember hearing about this many years ago, uh, but I had forgotten. So forgive me. Uh, his name was Alessandro Moreschi, and he died in 1922. So I'm sure you can find that recording. Um, I don't know if it's only one recording, uh, but you can find it easily through YouTube or Google or whatever. And it's it's definitely worth hearing. Uh, I, I don't know. As I also said, I, I suppose the only way we might hear a modern day castrato is if if some young man uh you know unfortunately had to be castrated mm-hmm. for medical reasons mm-hmm. and then also happened to have musical mm-hmm. talent mm-hmm. uh so until that happens i, I guess we're left with mr alessandro moreschi <laughs> i remember there was a foreign language movie called farinelli some years ago too yes uh, so uh but isn't there this- an english language one also Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I I, I believe that the uh, Farinelli I'm thinking of was uh, maybe an Italian movie, I suspect. But I remember um, being in a hotel room and seeing some of it and uh, seeing subtitles. So So, uh, when Farinelli played on the West End, uh, it was recognized by uh, the Olivier Awards. And uh, they awarded um, Yeston... Davies a special award so I wonder oh, nice. what's going to happen when this rolls around in, the t- in Tony time because uh, how do you separate out that role into two categories if in fact it, it will be recognized in any fashion but that's something to think about and keep our eyes on yeah that's a good uh, point James I mean it's not impossible they'll uh, do something like uh, Emily Skinner and Alice Ripley who got mm-hmm. one nomination um, so that's that's a possibility uh, it's not impossible they'll give if they really thought much of both people they would give two nominations in the same category that's not impossible either. but it is a good question and you know for that matter uh, who knows Maybe they'll even um, put him in a musical category. Uh, don't forget, hmm. there was a time when Dancing at Lunasa got a choreography nomination. You know, so it, it all depends on the committee. You know, so um, it, it could very well uh, whatever is needed is what is what usually happens. So we'll see. And something else, the last thing I'm going to say this morning about uh, Farinelli is that um, uh, I wonder if the people who didn't appreciate it as much as the three of us did were thrown by the language because the language is so contemporary in in the script mm-hmm. but we're talking about you know 1700s in madrid uh in spain uh and maybe they were looking for uh it it felt so contemporary to me the language it didn't bother me but maybe it bothered the other people i don't i don't know if that is part of their their contention uh, sure, with, sure. with uh, it not being as good as they thought it was. But sure, I, I, sure. I thought it was great, and it's a limited run, so you should try and get to see it as best as, po- as, best as you can. The film, by the way, was 1994, and it was a, a, a co-production, and, and apparently it is in uh, French and Italian. So ah. Peter was right. <laughs> it was half right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so, uh, Michael, you got to see uh, Andrew Reynolds at the Appel Room. So tell us about Andrew. Yes, this was billed as Live from Lincoln Center presents Andrew Reynolds. Apparently, it was a, a little mini series of concerts uh, or shows uh, that are going to be um, 
edited for telecast on PBS, if I understand correctly. So that was quite a coup um, for Mr. Rannells. Uh, there was another evening that had Sutton Foster, uh, apparently, with with special guest Jonathan Groff. And I'm not sure, one or two other concerts. I, I was invited to this uh, by a friend. And uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Andrew Rannells, known to many of our listeners from his leading role in the Book of Mormon, also as Wizard in the Falsettos revival, and but lots of other credits. Um, he was with a about a nine piece. Uh, band uh, with Todd Amond as the musical director, pianist, conductor, uh, backup singers Barry McLean, Sylvester Wallace, Ronald Pete. And it was, um, as Andrew himself joked, uh, but very seriously uh, throughout, uh, this has got to be one of the most eclectic programs that has ever been presented on the face of the earth. Beca- because uh, he said, at what other <laughs> show are you going to hear? Uh, both um, The Boy Next Door from Meet Me in St. Louis and uh, Born to Run, the Springsteen song, <laughs> which I guess now classifies as a, uh, a show tune, a Broadway show tune. <laughs> a second-hand show tune. <laughs> not written for the stage. Oh, exactly. I, I have not seen Springsteen, but I imagine there's Born to Run in there somewhere, at least a little bit of it. So anyway, you can uh, if you have your, you know, you, you can go see Springsteen sing it or you had the opportunity to hear Andrew Reynolds do it. Um, but it, it really was a very eclectic program and his patter was quite funny and charming and hilarious. Some of the other songs he sang, uh, he opened with Lonely Boy, which uh, was really the biggest hit of Andrew Gold, the wonderful uh, singer, songwriter, musician who was the son of Marnie Nixon. Uh, and Andrew's other big hit that everyone would know is uh, Thank You for Being a Friend, the theme song from the Golden Girls. But Lonely Boy, if you don't know it, is a really, really wonderful pop song, uh, pop rock song that you should know. Um, also on the program, uh, oh, yeah, this is another one that uh, Andrew cited for his, you know, its uh, randomness in, in this program. It must be him, the Vicky Carr Mm-hmm. Song, which he really did a great job with, sort of like uh, uh, walking the fine line between sending it up for the the melodrama of it, like the kind of stalkerish quality of it, but also uh, you know the real uh, tapping into the real emotion of it as well. Um, there was also an into the woods segment, uh, several songs from that that worked really well, and. Uh, Oh, and he sang, and they're off from a new brain. He did not sing anything from falsettos, but uh, as the William Finn part of the program, he did, and they're off from a new brain. And several other songs, but not too many. It was uh, quite a short program because, as I said, they are going to be, I believe these are going to be telecast on PBS uh, as one-hour specials. So I'll tell you, um, the camera set up at the Appel Room uh, at the Time Warner Center. I mean, that's a beautiful space to begin with, but uh, I've never seen cameras swooping over my head like that before. It, it mm-hmm. looked like major, major uh, camera work being done. And I, it's probably going to look amazing on TV because that room is so beautiful to begin with, uh, with the entire wall of glass basically overlooking Central Park South. Um, 
and I'm I someone told me when these are going to be on, but I forgot. It's not in, not in the immediate future, so I'm sure that y'all will hear about it. But if not, we'll make sure to remind you when the time comes. All right. So, um, Peter, you got to see. Is it a magician named Jason Bishop or Jason Bishop in a magic show? <laughs> uh, Jason Bishop is indeed a magician, and he's doing a show called Believe in Magic, which is at the New Victory Theater. And um, he's quite good, quite good indeed, does all the tricks uh, that um, you would hope that he would do. Uh, the, the lady goes into the box. There's no reason how she could possibly be in that box, but there she is. They put swords through the box. All those tricks that you've seen a million times, I'll grant you. But the New Victory Theater is, after all, a, a theater for children. And so the place was filled with kids who were just so enthusiastic enthusiastic and uh, had a wonderful time. Now, when you have little kids in the audience, of course, <laughs> you can often uh, depend on um, kids speaking maybe when they shouldn't. So uh, there was a scene in which um, the magician is trying to guess certain uh, the way a certain uh, four objects are situated. Uh, he, he brings up a little kid from the audience and say, okay, put these um, four objects in any uh, position you want. And um, and then he will show that um, he knew it was um, happening, even though he was blindfolded. But of course, kids are yelling out <laughs> what they are. So sort of uh, spoiling the tricks. But he was very nice with the kids and very good humored about it. And um, but, but you know, what's really wonderful about Jason Bishop is that he doesn't go about in tuxedo. He doesn't have a top hat. I mean, he's dressed um, very, very down market and um, has this wonderful um, – uh, not lazy. What's the word I'm looking for? A casual, casual. That's the word I'm looking for. Very casual delivery that makes him very appealing. And uh, so there's no abracadabras. There's no presto changos or anything like that. Um, but he really does a very good job of doing the tricks and being – just such a lovely personality that you're enjoying spending time with him. So, uh, again, it's mostly for kids who've never seen uh, tricks before, but if you're looking for something to bring the kids to during this holiday period of time, I can recommend Jason Magic, uh, Jason Bishop Believe in Magic. I think it's uh, really quite good. Excellent. All right. So, uh, Michael, you saw Desperate Measures at the York Theatre Company, so tell us about Destri Desperate Measures. Yes, I don't want to take too much time because the show has been running for a while and, in fact, closes next week after, I think, four extensions. Uh, but I didn't get to it earlier, and, and I did want to mention it because I just got to it yesterday. And first of all, I'll, I'll say it was still in really great shape. Um, this is a musical with book and lyrics by Peter Kellogg and music by David Friedman, Friedman, uh, excuse me, David Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, uh, loosely based on Shakespeare's Measure for Measure, uh, but set in the Old West. <laughs> I think that was a great idea to begin with. It, it, they did a really wonderful job of writing this um, kind of pastiche Western score with uh, wonderful, catchy melodies and rhythms and really, really clever lyrics. What was really interesting to me about this show is that earlier this same year, I had seen another Peter Kellogg, David Friedman musical called Money Talks. Uh, and the concept of that was that it followed uh, <laughs> the progress of a $100 bill 
uh, as represented by Ben Franklin, as it goes um, around, uh, you know, the city, like from one person to another and uh, the things that uh, happen and how those people spend it. And, and I just uh, I really, really did not like that show at all. I thought it was it seemed like it turned into kind of a very facile one joke concept and it didn't sustain over its length. Um, and actually, yeah. So I initially resisted seeing desperate measures, but I'm so glad I went. I, I thought it was utterly delightful. I, in fact, I would say any problems uh, that in this musical are probably endemic to the source material, <laughs> the Shakespeare uh, measure for measure in which some of the plot elements are a little just kind of a little out there. But this was so well done. I um, I caught it in the second to last week of its run. Apparently, I believe the night after they filmed it uh, or taped it or whatever word you use now for uh, the theater on film and tape uh, archive at the Lincoln Center Library. And the cast was really at the top of their game. Uh, Emma... Degerstedt, Gary Marachek, Lauren Molina, Connor Ryan, Peter Sade, and Nick Wyman uh, under the direction and choreography of Bill Castellino. And this was at the York Theatre Company uh, at St. Peter's Church. Very nice um, set also. <laughs> but scenic design by James Morgan, costumes by Nicole Wee, uh, lighting design by Paul Miller. Um, this has been one of their most popular presentations in recent years. And I'm so happy to say uh, it is a full production of a new musical. They, the, the York, um, they need to cut corners a lot. So they do musicals in Mufti, which are not fully staged, although I love them anyway. Uh, and they, uh, they uh, also, as some other theaters that we have mentioned, they have almost become more of a presentation house than an actual producing organization. But wherever the uh, money came from here, it says it's produced in association with Pat Flicker Addis and Cecilia Lin and Yu Guo. Uh, but money was spent on costumes and the the, the – the, um, the costumes are really beautiful, um, I have to say, by Nicole Wee. I'll mention her name again. And this, it's a, basically a unit set, which I know Peter's not that fond of, but <laughs> it, looked, it looked fantastic. And the space was used very well. And um, the only negative thing I would say about the whole show was that it was rather heavily amplified. One of the reasons uh, that I love going to New York so much when I, when I normally go for Mufti is at least, uh, I don't know, maybe that's changed because I haven't been in a while, but they used to be uh, completely unamplified. And it's so rare that you can find a, a venue and a, a, a theater anymore where you can actually hear the human voice unamplified. Um, so I was sorry about that. And also the level of the amplification was uh, I thought quite a bit more than it needed to be, uh, but I, I should, um, you know, full disclosure. I, I, I seem to have become much more sensitive to that lately. It might be partly an age thing, and I'm sure many of our uh, listeners won't have a problem with it at all. So if you have um, some time during uh, during the week between Christmas and New Year's uh, and you want to try to get there, I would definitely say it's worth 
the trip to St. Peter's Church to see and to hear desperate measures. Um, let me let me let me chime in here because um, Michael, you said something that um, I felt too, and um, and that was the fact that uh, it actually improved the Shakespeare play. And um, I, in my review, I said it was better than Shakespeare, and I've been um, mocked for that quite a bit. And I understand what I should have said was uh, if it, it was better than what Shakespeare did with Measure for Measure. I don't mean to say that it's better than right. Hamlet and Othello, but I mean, but <laughs> nevertheless, um, I I really felt that they've solved a lot of problems that Shakespeare uh, caused. Um, this is one of his problem plays, which I always feel there's a specific definition for problem play but from my point of view problem play means the ones that aren't so hot exactly so, uh, <laughs> so that's you know so anyway um i really do think that they um did a very good job in in finding other values that um uh, the bard uh, did not so um sue me well one way they improved it i would say is to make the tone overall so much lighter Mm-hmm. That that in itself helped, but then uh, switching it to the Western milieu just really made it very colorful. And the way they rewrote the characters to fit into that milieu, I think it is all really very well done and very very clever. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we've seen the last of it. No, uh, and in fact, um, uh, we were told that it has been recorded. There will be a cast album, and I mentioned the uh, the the filming or taping for Toft. So it will live on in that way for people who can make their their way to the Lincoln Center Library to to view it on video. I'm, I mean, I'm sure it's not available immediately, but it probably will yeah. soon. That's a good question, Michael. I've never thought about that. I wonder what the um, time is between taping and showing up at the museum. Um, that's that's something I'm going to have to ask. Uh, that's a good Pat. question. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought it up. All right. So uh, next up, Peter, you got to the National Yiddish Theater at Folksbean, the uh, Winter Gala, where they had Broadway, A Jewish American Legacy, honoring Jerry Zaks. So tell us about that. Well, for one thing, um, I adore Jerry Zaks, um, <laughs> not only for what he's done on Broadway, but um, because I think he should be a lesson to everybody who has ever been in the show. Uh, his story is that he was at Dartmouth University and he was in pre-med and he went to see their production of Wonderful Town and said, oh, my God, this is tremendous. Oh, my God. And the next year, there was they did a revival of Wonderful Town, which really happens in college theater, that they would do the same show two years ago. And he said, I got to be a part of this. So he tried out, and he got into the chorus. And therefore, if you know Wonderful Town, he played a Brazilian admiral. He played a Greenwich Village um, resident. He played an Irish policeman. He played a nightclub patron. But the part that's so wonderful is that he used to go backstage, and when he was changing uh, from one costume and he said look at all these costumes and they're all mine what a wonderful way to look at uh, being in the ensemble as opposed to <laughs> yeah, I was just in the chorus you know no I mean and it really shows something about Jerry Zaks why so I, I adore Jerry Zaks for that reason and I will never forget when he was doing Sister Act um, which is at, was at the Broadway theater and I live in that neighborhood and I was walking and I ran into him and um, I told him uh, how much I enjoyed that story and he burst into tears, you know, because it really brought him back to how far he had come and how far he's come means for Tony Awards and at the moment three shows on Broadway, uh, which is pretty good. So so he was wonderfully gracious in accepting his award and uh, that was all fine. But of course, there was an evening um, preceding that uh, 
and uh, we had a lot of famous show songs, but many of them done in Yiddish, which was really something because, of course, the translations cannot be exact. You can't expect that with uh, lines that are supposed to rhyme. So if you know the song Making Whoopi, and I hope you do, because I truly believe this is the funniest show song of all time. A lot of people go for Adelaide's Lament, which, by the way, was done wonderfully by Liz Larson, tremendously um, innovative in the ways that she looked at um, how she was doing it because um, she had a problem with um, psychosomatic. I mean, she had Adelaide have a problem with psychosomatic. You know, when you think of it, Adelaide wouldn't know that word, would she? So um, so she stumbled over it, and I thought that was uh, very um, perceptive of her. But anyway, making Whoopi um, deals with a guy who's uh, fooling around on his wife, and um, the lyric goes... Now, he doesn't make much money, only 5000 per. Some judge who thinks he's funny says you'll pay six to her. He says, now, judge, suppose I fail. Judge says, son, you go to jail. You better keep her. I think it's cheaper than making whoopee. But it was so wonderful, the translation, they didn't use the word judge. They used the word rabbi, which I thought was terrific. So um, a lot of uh, things like that. It was, it was really something also to hear um, the famous um, – you're not sick. You're just in love. Um, from um, uh, call me madam. So um, and uh, that was really wonderfully done. But uh, again, the lyrics uh, bore very little relationship to what Irving Berlin actually wrote. So so it was a lot of fun there. But uh, the highlight of the evening had to be here's Sheldon Harnick's name again. Uh, he came out and with Judy Blazer did "Do You Love Me." from Fiddler. And, you know, there is something magical about hearing a lyricist do his own material. He knows where the values are. And as many times as you've heard Do You Love Me, and I'm sure you've heard Do You Love Me plenty of times, be it from the original cast album of the umpteen million revivals and community theater and what have you productions of Fiddler. I'm telling you, I heard different values in this, and I guess that's what Sheldon always wanted um, or, or always imagined. So so that was really um, the highlight of the evening. Um, but just seeing the super titles up above while people were singing Yiddish and seeing the differences really made for a very, very uh, good-natured evening. And I'm, I was very glad to be there. I felt very fortunate to uh, experience this. This theater uh, really uh, – it, it's, it's, it's really growing, which is really something because of course this is one of the the survivors of the second avenue um great days of the yiddish theater down there and to think that they're still in business they're still doing it and they seem to be revving up i mean they're about to do a show called the sorceress which was a a show from way back when and um we're going to see a production of fiddler in august i I think it's august maybe july uh in which they're going to do it in yiddish and um i'm certainly looking forward to that as well so so really um this this is uh, it's it's so nice that um, a company that is doing such off the wall things when you think of it, you know, and we really have to um, be very appreciative of the fact that um, I think his name is Alman Maltek um, is is certainly uh, leading the band and doing uh, very well by them. But um, to get Victor Garber out there, David Hyde Pierce out there, uh, Terrence Mann, Douglas Sills, a, a lot of wonderful people who were just so thrilled to come out and support Jerry's acts, uh, who certainly have been uh, tremendously uh, important uh, in the careers. But it was just such a, 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 a night of good feeling and um, and hearing show, songs you've heard a million times, but with this new twist to them, new to us anyway, was uh, was very, very gratifying.
just to clarify, She Loves Me, uh, uh, Do You Love Me was also in Yiddish? Yeah. Oh, no, no. Sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, it was not. Oh, OK. OK. All right. Well, <laughs> yeah. so we'll have to wait. We'll have to wait for that full production of Fiddler. Right, 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 right. <laughs> sorry. No, that would have been something. I apologize. No, uh, very much. Uh, <laughs> every lyric we, we knew. And Judy Blazer, who's so wonderful, too, uh, was really terrific playing Golda. So uh, it, it was it was a very special moment. So I found uh, the information on uh, National Yiddish Theater folks being is going to stage uh, Fiddler in Yiddish in July 2018. July, okay. July. Be here before we do Yeah, exactly. You know, when we will be complaining about the heat instead of complaining about the cold. That's right. So, uh, and I'm sure that uh, we'll all get down to check that out. Uh, Peter, just to wrap up the morning, if you have an extra minute, uh, did you see the Fiasco Theater's Twelfth Night or What You Will at Classic Stage Company? Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought it was terrific. Um, and one of the reasons I thought it was terrific is because it started so unexpectedly. Okay, so, um... Shakespeare started with a ship. I'm criticizing Shakespeare all day today. Uh, Shakespeare started with a shipwreck, and that's fine. You're great. You know, no problem. But uh, the fiasco directors, Noah Brody and Ben Steinfeld are their names, um, started very differently. And that was, uh, you saw the guys on the ship singing a sea chanty. Everybody's optimistic, and they're talking about what a great ship this is. Oh, the, what a ship. I mean, uh, and suddenly there's a shipwreck. I thought that was tremendously imaginative. You know, uh, you know uh, the, the hubris of the Titanic, you Know, that type of thing. Um, so um, I, I like that very, very much. That's essentially what it came down to. Um, the greatest ship in the world, in essence, they're saying, and, and, and what happens. So so um, I like that very, very much. Um, and I also um, very, very much uh, enjoyed uh, seeing the um, – the performers who I think really uh, – it was amazing how they could do so much uh, with such a, a, um, a small cast, about 10 people. So um, Viola Cesario, so to speak, um, Emily Young, I thought was really quite um, marvelous. But I did have a question about something I thought was a joke. Um, I think it's a joke. I think they mean it uh, that way because – there's a line where Cesario is first coming on. To, uh, well, I, that's not fair. Uh, she's there to um, essentially go to bat for uh, Count Osino. But anyway, there she is uh, trying to uh, impress um, Olivia, who's uh, really quite a nice queen. Uh, and certainly in this production, um, she reduces everybody to crushed dice, believe me. So anyway, <laughs> she's she's um, dressed totally in black because she's in mourning and she has a black veil over her face. And there's um, Cesario talking about your radiant, exquisite, unmatchable beauty. Well, she's got a veil on. I mean, you know, so um, and I have a feeling that this was um, supposed to be a joke um, that the directors decided to have fun with uh, the absurdity of it all because Twelfth Night is a comedy um, I well for everybody but Malvolio I'll grant you but um, but anyway it's so nice um, to see um, Jesse Austrian play Olivia and there she is as I say you know this imperious person but then she has a thing for Cesario and um, I'm telling you she melts like a snowball in Dante's Inferno uh, and it's really quite something to see her make the adjustment from uh, imperious lady to lovesick lady 
And um, there are sight gags you've seen before. I mean, Cesario runs across the stage and everybody's wondering why he's running. And then Olivia comes on running after him and she sees everybody looking at her. And she's always been this dignified woman. And so as a result, she stops and she starts walking slowly. And as soon as she thinks she's out of eye shot, and in fact, she isn't, uh, she starts running again. I mean, that's a very old joke, but it's it's time honored. And I think it really was uh, quite fun to see again. Um, Andy Grotolution uh, plays Sir Toby Belch. And what I really liked about his performance, uh, so many times I've seen um, actors over this, by the way, it was my 18th, 12th night. Um, I've seen actors overdo the drunkenness and um, slurring words and what have you. What he did instead was be unsteady on his feet, although he tried very hard to hide his staggering. So I very much like the fact that he was um, like so many drunks trying to pretend that he wasn't and um, thinking he gets away with it when he really doesn't, that um, he's revealing much more than he thought he would. So now Grotolution, who was terrific as a, a cow in Into the Woods, the fiasco Into the Woods a, a, a while back, mm-hmm. um, is now a pig in the sense that uh, he thinks nothing about locking his legs around Mariah's waist um, at a time when, sad to say, sexual harassment was um, not yet a factor. And Tina Chillip uh, <laughs> uh, playing Mariah. To me, she was um, a New World um, Nanette Fabre. And if you don't know who Nanette Fabre is, um, that's why we have YouTube. So um, I think you should uh, certainly check that out. So I I loved all the little touches. Uh, There was a moment where they sing the 12 Days of Christmas, which – and what they did was editorialize that the damn thing never seems to end. I mean I was really reminded of Mrs. Lovett asking Beetle Bamford, "Uh, how many bells are there, you know, when um, when he's there playing the – harmonium <laughs> same type of feeling was there as well so um so i had a wonderful time at this 12th night and um uh, but the problem that always plagues this play um was plagued again you would never in a million years confuse sebastian and viola now um sebastian is her um twin brother they're fraternal twins and um they supposedly look enough and like that they could pass for each other. Cause there's a lot of mistaken identity in 12th night. And, um, the thing is, it's not enough just to put them in the same color sweaters and the same color pants and have everybody mistake uh, one for the other. Cause the two actors just did not resemble each other in any way. And so here's what I've decided. I think there should be a revival of 12th night with Hunter and Sutton Foster, and they should play the roles. <laughs> and, um, because while they don't look identically alike, they look enough alike that perhaps with uh, enough makeup touches and the same wigs um, could get away with it. And uh, I don't imagine Sutton Foster would be much interested in playing the role um, that uh, 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 that Hunter would either. But um, but still, I would I would like to see that happen. And so, if you're a director out there and you know two fraternal twins, um, a, a boy and a girl, a uh, man and a woman, um, by all means. You know, consider doing Twelfth Night because uh, I think your audience really would be delighted if they saw two people who looked alike. That you didn't have to. Uh, the phrase I hate most in theater, perhaps, um, suspend your disbelief. You know, I, I don't want to suspend disbelief. I want to believe. So, um, so therefore, um, uh, that was the only problem. But again, of all the productions I've seen, it's always been a problem. So, uh, but maybe Fraternal Twins is the answer to that. Um, 
uh, issue. On the other hand, too, to be fair, um, some years ago, Emily Mann uh, did an Edward Albee play about two twins, Otto and Otto, um, and it will all be played called Me, Myself, and I. And uh, one, uh, the mother named both kids Otto. One was totally in capital letters and one was in um, lowercase letters, which I would think would bring up so many problems psychologically. Yeah. <laughs> one would feel superior to the other and the other would always feel inferior. But anyway, the point is she said, oh, I love the play. I'm going to do it. And then she thought, wait a minute. i got to find two <laughs> identical twins. How am I going to do that? You know, well, uh, she didn't quite succeed um, and nobody would expect her to. But um, the fact remains that fraternal twins are a little easier, you know, or even brothers and sisters who happen to resemble each other. They don't have to be twins. You know, I mean, I I, I checked and I found that uh, one fosters. Um, a few years older than the other. I won't say how, um, which one is. But uh, anyway, um, but I think, you know, they'd get away with it. So uh, directors out there who want to do Twelfth Night, think about this. Peter, you know which production I think pulled it off with Sebastian and Viola? The one with uh, at Lincoln Center some years ago with Helen Hunt and the actor's name was Rick Steer. Did you – and that was on TV with Paul Rudd was in it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I thought, you know, it's a matter of opinion, but I thought that they really looked a lot alike. And also this is this is not uh, this is not official. But as I had mentioned before, Boys from Syracuse is coming up at musicals tonight. And from what I am told, it seems as if they may have found two sets of no identical kidding. twins to oh, play fabulous. the Dromeo, the Dromeos and the Antiphili. How terrific. Good so uh, Miller. Good we'll see Miller. if that works. <laughs> yeah. Now all they need is talent. Okay, well, that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com, and there's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is iHeartRadio plays us, Google Play has us, uh, TuneIn has us, uh, Stitcher app has us, anywhere that you can get finer podcasts. Uh, contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found here at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including I found Bryant Lake Bowl and Theater, which is in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, which is a bowling alley slash cabaret space. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's it, I've had some friends that uh, have worked out there and they adore it and they say it's great. Uh, so, Peter, do you have an answer to trivia from two weeks ago? Yeah, the question was, I'll admit the two names I'm looking for aren't spelled the same, but they certainly sound the same. One is the maiden name of a character who, in the musical, was married to a character that was portrayed by an actor who won a Tony for playing his role. The other is the actual name of an actress who won a Tony Award. What's the name? Well, the name I was looking for is McKechnie, as in Eulalie McKechnie Shin of The Music Man, whose husband in the show, Mayor Shin, was played by David Burns, who won a Tony Award, even though he didn't sing a note. The Tony-winning actress named McKechnie, of course, is Donna for her Cassie in a chorus line. And if you think that one was impossible, and uh, <laughs> well, everybody did, because the only person to get it was Jeremy Scott Blaustein, who I should tell you has a terrific musical theater website called IWillRegretThisLater.com. <laughs> really? 
Awesome. And check it out. That, all those words smushed together. I regret this. I will regret this later. Dot com. Uh, Jeffrey Scott Blaustein. He was the only one to get it. Um, and we'll see if anybody can get this one, uh, which I'm almost ashamed to give. It's so difficult. But here we go. <clears throat> if a song title from a Tony winning musical of the 70s had been written in time for June 13th, 1965, it would have aptly ex- described Cheetah Rivera's job situation. <laughs> Explain. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So after checking out I will regret this later.com, if you know the answer to this, please uh, email us at triviabroadradio.com and we'll let you know if you are on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> Just wait until the 24th. The 24th? One day to Christmas, one day to Christmas, not a time to do a Christmas shopping. We're not the shop of the beat design, we're not the shoe of the pop design, we're not the people who shop the time, shop the time.